I wrote at the top of my paper, the power of faithful thinking. Amen? And that's what we're talking about already. Not the power of positive thinking, the power of faithful thinking. God has given us such a glorious victory. I don't think anything occurs on earth more beautiful than what we witnessed last Sunday. I, I really do. I think that the Lord parted the curtains of eternity and let us slip through into holy places. And that was a foretaste of heaven. And that love that we felt for each other and for the Lord, that remembering of who and what he is for us, that's what it's all about. But I also know that it is the devil's business to follow up great and glorious victories with the nagging termites of little thoughts and little sins and little dynamics that want to eat out the structure that could sustain such a victory and make it more and better than a reproach in our lives. And so I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about the power of faithful thinking and how even as we leave from this place today, we're going to face the battle that my mom articulated when she said the Lord touched her and immediately she started hearing those voices that said, oh, well, you know, the pain had left before and it'll come back and so on and so forth. Well, that's, a, that's just a snapshot into the battle we all face. And it is a battle and it is a spiritual battle. I want to start with just reading the scripture that is familiar to us. This is 2 Corinthians 10. And I'm going to read from a different translation because it helps us hear it better. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. We capture rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. There are people in this room who have had multiple powerful encounters with God. But those encounters have not equaled the sustained victory in their lives that they have produced in the lives of others. And the difference is they haven't dealt with the termites of persistent, eroding, undermining thought patterns that make God's work of no effect in their life. So when Paul speaks about powerful weapons that are not carnal but mighty, the first thing he zeroes in on, God's got a cannon, he's got a, he's got a cruise missile, and he's not aiming it at some den of hobgoblins in the stars. He's aiming it at thought patterns in your head. When God mobilizes his arsenal of supernatural power, he is directing it toward thought patterns in your mind. The Lord woke me up two mornings ago 
And I heard this, this, this thought was in my mind and it said, even the thought can be the sin. You say, well, I, I agree with that. I read Psalms 94 where he says, the Lord knows the thoughts of people. He knows that they are worthless. And again, Matthew 9, it says, Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said, why do you harbor evil in your hearts? So the mind is a harbor where ships of evil sail into the heart. The mind is a harbor where ships of evil sail into the feelings, into the heart, and from there into the practice, to the behavior. Somebody is thinking, well, I'm trying to keep, you know, these old fleshly thoughts dead, and I I think I'm doing a pretty good job. You know, that's not actually my focus today. That's not my focus. That's a valid that's a valid subject to pursue, and we'll pursue that at another time. But I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the pride in the certainty of one's own perspective. I'm talking about our view of reality that conflicts with God's. I'm talking about self-pity. I've got a major target on that this morning. I want to show you that self-pity is a feeling that is a sin. The feeling itself is the sin. It's not what it might produce. It's not what it might make you say. It's not whether it's valid or invalid. The feeling itself is a sin. If we don't get our arsenal ready and prepare, we're going to be crestfallen when we lose the momentum and the faith and the victory that we feel here today. But I want to go out from this communion with a momentum that cannot be stopped. I want to be done with lesser things. I want to spread the gospel. I want to show people the patterns of life. I want to expand the the tent, the tabernacle of the Lord. I want to stretch out the tent pegs. I don't want to meddle in the picky, unish baby battles that consume us. Communion is a time to sort through those things, but we don't have to keep going back again and again and again and again. Let's be done with it once and for all. So I want to start with a, with a, a phrase, and some of you say, well, he's talking about me. Well, I am, but me too. And I, I guarantee you there's at least a thousand who are thinking he's talking about me, so you're in good company. Have you ever felt or heard someone say something like, well, I'm just being honest with my feelings? Especially when they're faithless, especially when they're self-pitiful, especially when they're negative. I'm just being honest with my feelings. Those feelings, are they trustworthy? Well, we... We feel the presence of God and we say that that's trustworthy. We say that we're supposed to feel after God if perchance we find him and we say that's trustworthy. So how do we parse between feelings that are trustworthy and feelings that are not? 
How do I know that I am discerning things rightly? If I feel that Gabe really doesn't like me, he kind of gives you that feeling from time to time. But I've learned to overcome him. No, if I feel that Gabe really doesn't like me or that he's out to get me, how do I know that that feeling is worth anything? You can test it pretty easily. Go to Gabe and say, Gabe, I have next week. Brother Tsubrisa, go and test it. Okay, what about if I wake up one morning and I just feel depressed? I'm not trying to make a mockery of these things. These things happen. We all go through these things. Do I trust that feeling? What if I feel that it's hopeless or feel that it's useless to serve God? What if I feel that there's no future for me in the purpose of God? What if I feel that I can't change? Hmm? Purely faithless situation, when God speaks, he inspires faith. You can seem like there's no hope, there's no anything. But when it's God, you feel the faith. Okay? The devil, when he speaks, you, you feel hopeless, you feel faithless. That's just, that's what it always is. God never inspires those feelings within you. Amen. Brother Dan or somebody first spoke to us about the difference between condemnation and conviction. Con meaning with. Damnation, condemnation, or with victus, victory. God convicts. He brings this weighty awareness, but it's always with victory. The devil condemns. He brings this weighty awareness, but it's always with hopelessness and damnation. So that's one way you're saying if I don't feel faith in my feelings, then my feelings aren't of God. Surely not. Surely not. I mean, it's not like Paul said, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. It's just whatsoever is not of faith is to be pitied. Whatsoever is not of faith needs help, needs explanation, needs time. Isn't that what Paul said? No, what did he say? Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If you're indulging a thought pattern, if you're indulging a fear pattern, if you're indulging a feeling that does not have faith in it, it is a sin. So what are the feelings that I get that I can trust? Somebody read John 16, 13. Do you mind? Anybody? However, when he, the spirit of, oh, I'm sorry, yes. he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. Amen. So Jesus says that the remedy that saves us from being led and guided into falsehood and deception is the Holy Spirit. And that he does not speak on his own authority, but he speaks as he hears. 
This is the agency of anointing that we're talking about in the church. So you could say that the only way we know that we're not being led into falsehood is if we are being led by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit anointing this perception? Do I feel the witness of the Holy Spirit in this assessment, in this feeling, in this thought, in this conclusion? So when we come to a crossroads, if we're wanting to be led by the Spirit, it says as many as are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. And I've said recently that nobody is led except one who knows he is not sufficient to lead himself on his own power. Amen. But when we come to a crossroads and we're praying about whether we should go overseas, I have to do that from time to time, and, and, and we're praying about it. I remember I, I shared Thursday night how when my dad was uh, declining precipitously, Brother Howard told us that there was a ripe work that God was doing up in this small town called Chalice, Idaho. And that he really felt like maybe somebody should go up there. So Brother Howard and Brother Josiah went up and he came back and, and I was struggling. He had invited me to go on the first one, but I felt pulled. And I was like, there are needs in the church. I don't know. I don't want to be gone when dad goes. And I just didn't feel that release. But when I come to a threshold like that, I'm praying, God, would you please give me a leading of your spirit? Amen. Would you please confirm this? And what I'm listening for is for someone to come with a word that confirms it or oftentimes just to have a feeling, this presence of God in prayer that tells me this is my will. And and to me, it's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. You will hear, he says, your teacher will not hide himself from you any longer for you will hear a voice behind you saying this is the way, walk in it. And I think that that is an imagery, this voice behind you. It's, it's just this sense that the Lord is saying, this is my way, walk in it. Sometimes it's very overt, very easy. Other times, it's just a resonance in your heart. You sense this is God's will. Amen? This is how we seek the Lord. So when Brother Howard came back, he said, I feel like you need to go over there. And I said, well, what I'm waiting for is for someone to tell me that it's God's will. And if they do that, I will, I will go over. And Brother Howard doesn't do this all the time, but in this case, he said, okay, are you listening? I said, yes, it is God's will. <laughs> and I cut tickets and went over immediately. <clears throat> and praise God when someone will speak that plainly. That's a rare thing, but praise God when someone will speak that plainly. But I want us to entertain the fact that we're supposed to have that kind of leading when choosing our thoughts. When choosing the feelings that we're going to live by. And you say to me, I don't choose my thoughts. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. You pull your thoughts off of a shelf like somebody pulls a book off of a library shelf. You choose your thoughts. You say, I'm going to indulge this. 
I'm going to believe this. I'm going to take this to the next level. I'm going to turn a page. I'm going to go to the next chapter. I'm going to keep reading this narrative. And the narrative you choose is going to define your reality. Reality is not what defines your narrative. Your narrative is what defines your perceived reality. That's why it's so dangerous. And when you start feeling negative or hopeless, first of all, just maybe have some coffee or have something for breakfast. That may solve it all by itself. Or take a nap. That may also solve it. Many burdens are metabolic in nature. And a cheeseburger can solve it. We are human. We are frail. Our flesh is subject to things like mood swings and that and the other thing. And just because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed doesn't mean the earth is collapsing or the church is a failure or your life is hopeless. But if you live by that azimuth, by that instinct, then you're going to become the slave of your mood swings, the slave of however you woke up feeling that morning. But when you wake up, you need to, you need to assess and say, God, is this, do I feel the Holy Ghost in this? Do I feel the witness of the Spirit in this? Your mercies are new every morning. Do I have new mercy flowing through this? Or is this something altogether less? <laughs> he says that as a man thinketh in himself, so is he. He says to you to eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. What he's saying is even when we do the right thing, like saying to people, come over for dinner, God assesses how we think. Do you understand? He doesn't say, as a man says, so is he. He says, as a man thinketh, so is he. There are thoughts at the core of our person, at the core of our being, that must be dealt with. And they're thought patterns. I remember coming through to a place of repentance. And one of the things that I battled was judgment. And I believe it is the hallmark. I believe judgmentalism is the precursor of apostasy. A certain kind of biting speed to see wrong in everything. In my experience is the precursor to apostasy. Fault finders. Right? They're like metal detectors. Every conversation they're going bleep. Because they're finding fault. They're seeing through. They're discerning. And for me, I engaged in a constant battle. And the battle did not last eternally. I don't feel like I'm still engaged in it constitutionally. But I would walk through life and I would encounter someone and my old judgments would creep into my mind. And I would say, they think they're so holy. And before that full thought could even pass through my brain, I would say, oh, Jesus, forgive me, God. Please help me not to think like that about them. 
And then a little bit later, he thinks he's so smart. Oh, God, in Jesus' name. You got to take this seriously. Because those thoughts are not God's thoughts. And those feelings may not be God's feelings. The only time you know your feelings are from God is if they're anointed by the Spirit. Can you ask yourself that question? Is this feeling anointed by the Spirit and accompanied with faith? If the answer is yes, let's talk. If it's not, well, don't bring that. Go repent. Because you're already in sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. The worst thing that God can do, the worst judgment he can pass on us, is to release us to the deception of our own thoughts that exclude us from the life-giving, miracle-working faith that overcomes the world. Amen? 2 Thessalonians 2.10, they perish because they refused to love the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will give them over to a powerful delusion so that they will be so that they will believe a lie and be damned now this phrase give them over it denotes that there's a powerful thing happening or pulling at you and god finally says okay you can have it God's truth is a pull on your heart. And the lie of self-pity is a pull on your heart. And these are in tension with each other. And only your love for the truth, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Only your love for the truth can help you break the bonds of those lies and make it into the purpose and freedom of Christ. But when you refuse to receive a love for the truth, then the truth doesn't set you free, and God gives you over. He lets, lets it have its way. Amen. We have got to cultivate a love for the truth, the truth that hurts, but the truth that gives hope, the truth that pierces but also provokes us to ask, men and brethren, what must we do? Didn't they ask that when they were cut to the heart? This same phrase appears just three chapters later when Stephen begins to speak just like Peter was speaking. Peter was proclaiming a word that told the people they were guilty of the blood of Messiah. And Stephen also is proclaiming a word that is no more painful to the flesh. But it seems that the crowd is more weighted toward the learned and the proud. And so the same phrase appears. He says, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth and grabbed stones and began to hurl violent rage at the messenger. Thank you, Jesus. So the truth hurts. The truth cuts. It's called the sword of the Spirit that is the Word 
of God. But it's a freeing sort of cutting. It's a liberating sort of cutting. It's disarming me of my excuses, but it's also holding out hope that I can be different, that I can trust God, that he is able, more than able, to accomplish what concerns me today. God's judgment is letting us finally live by the dictates of our deceitful heart. Psalm says, you know when I sit down and when I rise. God knew when we were standing in prayer and he knew when we sat down. And you understand my thoughts from afar off. The dumbest thing that's ever gone through your mind, the most outlandish thing, he knows it. James 1, 6, or James 1, 5 and 6 says that the man who is deprived of the miracles we were seeking at the beginning is the man who cannot resolve the tension between the narrative of truth and the narrative of selfishness, the narrative of defeat. Amen? He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways because he's caught between two powerful forces and he will receive nothing from the Lord. I read this this morning and it got me like never before. Isaiah 44, he says, This person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. And he cannot save himself or say, Is this thing in my right hand not a lie? The man feeds on ashes. Does that conjure up an image of defeat? He feeds on ashes. You ever seen people just pouring themselves a bowl of ashes, sitting down to the breakfast table and telling you how life is going? They feed on it. It's like, oh, well, you know, it's like this and that, and you don't know what happened here, and what about the Feeds on ashes. Feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. The spirit of truth is not leading and guiding him into all truth. But a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is this thing in my right hand not a lie? But God will send a word to that deluded man feasting on ashes. And that word will break through his darkness, knock him to the ground as it did the apostles, Paul. Amen. And a blinding light in a flash of conviction, will show him who he is, who God is, and what the future holds. Though he cannot save himself, he has the power to exceed, to agree, to homologeo, confess what the Lord is speaking to him when that visitation comes. Thank you, Jesus. You, this is... This is a form of total depravity. He cannot save himself. No, indeed he cannot. 
But when the Lord breaks through, he can be saved. When light shatters through, he can be saved. Belshazzar was caught up in his own imaginations, drinking from the holy vessels of the temple, carousing and full of folly. He couldn't save himself. But suddenly the hand of a man appeared on the wall and began to write strange words, saying, you have been weighed in the balance and found lacking. And in that moment, something could have changed. That's that visitation of truth. That's that proactive light that breaks through all the resistant darkness and shows you the moment, shows you the truth in just a flash. I I see it, God. I see it. Maybe you'll only be changed during the meeting. Maybe you'll only be changed for a week or two. Or maybe you'll bring every thought into captivity to the mind of Christ. Maybe you'll discipline those feelings, conquer those moods, and say, God, I am not the slave of my worst impulses or my sourpuss attitudes. I am the servant of love. I am the servant of Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm more than a conqueror through him who loved me. Somebody says, well, I'm just being honest with how I feel. Somebody could even say that in this meeting now. I'm just being honest with how I feel. What is honest? What is honest? You see... Honesty is reality. And reality is God's viewpoint. Amen? God's viewpoint says, what is man that you are mindful of him? God's viewpoint says, what is your life? It is but a vapor that appears for a short while and then vanishes away. Reality says, you're going to die you're heading toward a great anticlimactic splat when everything you gave your life to is going to be for naught and you're put in a box six feet under and mourned for a short while and then forgotten. Reality says that you stand at the crossroads of eternal choices. Choices that will take you to eternal destinations. That's reality. Reality is life and death. Reality is heaven and hell. Reality is stark and terrifying. And nobody can remain complacent when they glimpse reality. Reality makes bug-eyed freakouts of us all. Unreality is the world you live in. Unreality is all things will continue as they have from the beginning. Unreality is your iPhone and your earbuds Unreality is your pictures and your pretty little houses and all the comfortable chairs and beds that you relax upon. That's unreality. Reality is found in the ICU of the hospitals here in town. Reality is found in the weeping coming out of the funeral homes here in town. That's reality. So when you talk about, I just want to be real, and I just want to be true to how I'm feeling, you're not living in reality. You are deluding yourself. You are taking an anesthetizer pill. You are dulling your senses 
to the reality that you have not been promised your next breath. Decisions that are made in the fear and trembling of stark reality, those are decisions that we can put some stock in. Decisions that are made in the complacency and the sleepy-headed indifference of our luxurious existence in this fake world, that is not reality. So when somebody says, I'm just being honest with how I feel, what is honest about your feelings? What is honest about our feelings? Our feelings may be the product of the biggest lies ever told. Our fears may be, our hopes may be, and our only chance of escaping this doom is to come into relationship with the one whose presence we detect as he leads and guides us into all truth. And if we become sufficiently dependent on his presence, then whenever he begins to move, it is an easy step. It is an eager step. It is a desperate step for us to move toward that reality of God's presence. The Lord brought this song to my memory this morning, and I I love this song. I learned this from Brother Zach when we first visited him in Chalice. This is my worship. This is my offering. In every moment, I withhold nothing. I'm learning to trust you even when I can't see it. And even in suffering... I have to believe it. If you say it's wrong, then I'll say no. If you say release, I'm letting go. If you're in it with me, I'll begin. And when you say to jump, I'm diving in. If you say be still, then I will wait. If you say to trust, I will obey. I don't want to follow my own ways. I'm done chasing my feelings. Spirit, lead me. Spirit, lead me. Spirit, lead me. I don't trust my ways. I'm trading in my thoughts. I lay down everything because you're all that I want. I've landed on my knees. This is the cup you have for me. And even when it don't make sense, I'm going to let your spirit lead me. I'm going to let your spirit lead me. The unwillingness to be led is based in a pride that we can still lead ourselves. And the essence of trust, the essence of repentance, is coming to a place where we say, I can't lead myself. I can't choose for myself. I need the Lord to guide me. I need to trust His voice. I need to trust His Spirit. Amen? And you say, well, but I I don't know. If I did that, I don't know if it would be real. You mean as unreal as the life you're already living? Nothing could be that unreal. Nothing could be unreal as trying to live without God. Nothing could be so foolhardy as trying to live and lead your own life without God. So we say, I don't want to be unreal. Listen, that's what I'm trying to get away from. The unreality of self-deception. And so if I think the Lord is speaking to me, I am just going to be, Lord, is that you, God? Some of you, you beg God to lead you. You say, Lord, speak to me. Lord, help me. 
And you come into a meeting. And God starts to speak to you. And you're like, thank you, Jesus. Cornelius had been building up a memorial of prayer for years before the throne of God. An unbeliever, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, excluded from the covenants of promise. He didn't have a lot telling him, this is the way, walk in it. But he must have just had this glimmer of hope, this tiny little spark that came from the heart of God through the chainmail of his armor and said, he is faithful to those who call on him. And in the day you seek me with all your heart, you will be, I will be found by you. Maybe there was just this little glimmer. I mean, the Jews didn't reward him. They didn't think there was any hope for him. And yet he calls on their God, building up this memorial, building up this need, this expectation, confessing his dependence. And when the messenger of the Lord appeared to him, there was no rationalization. There was no delay. There was no process to the wood chipper of his carnal mind. It says he dispatched servants immediately to Joppa and said, go tell this man named Simon the Peter, Simon Peter, what the Lord has said to me. And this guy comes into his house, the very first encounter, the very first meeting. I want you to imagine the kind of need, the kind of anticipation, the kind of readiness that was in Cornelius' heart and in the heart of his entire household while he is yet speaking. The Holy Spirit falls on them and they begin to speak in unknown tongues. This is a heart that is done following its own way. I don't trust my will. I've traded in my thoughts. I've landed on my knees. This is the cup you have for me. If you are that desperate for the leading of the Spirit, and if you are that done, 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 done with the leading of the flesh, you will meet the Lord today. You will get an answer now. He will change your life and turn you around and endue you with power to keep it. But you're double-minded. You're double-minded. You're scared of what it's going to take to cut all options and go all in. I was driving down Franklin after coming back, spending time with Brother Zach and Brother Sam and my brother Simeon in South Africa. And I was telling my wife what a blessing it was. And I said, you know, the gift that God has given Brother Zach and Simeon is the same gift he gave my dad and Brother Howard and the, the fathers of this church. Their flesh was utterly pulverized by the world and sin. And they had no option left of coming back under the tyranny of self. That's the gift. That's the gift. You want to see people powerful in God? You want to be as responsive to God as Brother Joel is when he worships or when he feels the word of God coming to him? Amen. You're not in less need of it than he is. 
But you're still hybridizing between your will and God's will. You're still the double-minded man. I wrote down this week, trust can be described, or saving faith can be described as the trust that follows a path which apparently leads to death, but which Christ says leads to life. When you find this path and you say to yourself, if I do that, I'm going to lose everything. I am going to be a nothing. What is my life? And Jesus says, yes, take up your cross. Follow me. He who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. In that course that you think is revolting and, and, and terrible and death, oh, I can't go there. That is your salvation. Walking down that course is your trust, your saving faith in Jesus. The one who stands on the backside of the path that leads to death and says, come on down this path and you'll find life. Who would do that? Who would do that? If there's no resurrection, we're of all men most miserable and most to be pitied, right? One way says, life, joy, freedom, independence. This is the way that leads to life. And it seems apparent. Everybody's skipping and wearing flip-flops and very happy down that path. And then there's this rugged path. And over over the path it says, leads to death. But Jesus stands on the other side of the gate saying, leads to life. Lose. Lose your life. Some of you who are so close, you don't have to be close anymore. You can be all the way in. Some of you who have been coming for so long and you want to cross that threshold, you don't have to wait on the other side any longer. You can make up your mind whether life has schooled you enough to rob you of any resilient trust in self. And if it has, then stand up and follow Jesus all the way. Thank you, Jesus. Take up your cross and say, this is the cup you have for me. And what a privilege. Thank you, Jesus. My mom was 19 when she came to God. 19. Some people reach the end of themselves at the age of 19. That's what that means. And there was no double-mindedness. There was no waffling. You don't have a genetic difference. Humanity has not mutated since the 1970s such that we don't get conversions like Brother Howard and Brother Joel and my mom and Brother Denny and the first generation of this church. That's not the change. They had just reached the end of themselves and so they could arrive at the beginning of grace. Thank you, Jesus. The evangelicals tell us all you have to have is faith. The Anabaptists say, no, that's not true. You got to have works. Well, I want to tell you something. All you have to have is faith. But you better define faith properly. Amen. It's the fundamental, constant, daily, hourly distrust and disobedience in self so that you can walk in newness of life in your Lord who is the Spirit. 
We need to bring these thoughts into captivity, don't we? We need to bring every thought into captivity to the mind of Christ. We need to pray under our breath whenever we feel a feeling starting to creep into our chest that says it's hopeless, I can't do it. I wonder what he's thinking. I think, oh God, deliver me from this body of death. I can't live here any longer. This is a lie. And I can't deliver myself. But Lord, I can come into your presence when my foot has almost slipped. And when I envied the wicked and thought that was my course, I can come into your presence and everything gets rearranged. He's doing that for you now. What are you going to do with it? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Mom, had you ever been in a Pentecostal church when you came that first time? Did you know anything about speaking in tongues when you came that first time? Was the doctrine of spirit baptism even in your vocabulary? Had anybody talked to you about it? No, 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 no. That's not what's needed. What's needed is what she had. She had been sitting Indian style in her living room with her roommates just a few nights before. And they were sitting around chatting and looking at clothes. And all of a sudden she heard the voice of eternity puncture through in that glimmer of light. And it said something terrifying. If you died tonight, you would go to hell. She had no idea what to do with that. Her friends told her to see a psychiatrist. But that was her road to Damascus. And just a few days later, Ananias was going to come pray for her and the scales were going to fall. And she was going to be ready to do whatever it took to get out of that place and onto another course. Have you reached the end of yourself? Well, don't go back. If you have not, know that that's where you've got to get before you're going to receive what God has for you. Brother Joel was 27 when you first came, 28. 27 years old when he first came through the doors of the East 14th Street Chapel. And you'd grown up in Sunday school your whole life, right, Brother Joel? No. When he was 13 at his bar mitzvah, as a Jewish boy, he would have normally received a Bible for his bar mitzvah. But his grandfather instead gave him a copy of Das Kapital. And he was raised as an atheist, as an unbeliever. Got into writing for economic journals and so on and so forth. But he saw the end of it. He saw the end of himself. He saw the end of the, the culture he was immersed in. He saw the end of socialism and the end of capitalism. And he saw that there was nothing there but a dead end. In complete hopelessness... He jumped off a cliff and attempted to take his own life. What a tragedy. No, not a tragedy. It was the Lord knocking him to the ground so that Ananias could pray for him a few days later. And the first meeting he ever came to, a Jew in a Christian church, the first meeting he ever came to, he walked up from the back and came up and was baptized in the Holy Spirit, never having heard of it. But he was ready to experience it. The only thing keeping you from getting what God has for you is your pride. You're still sufficient. The Bible says there is hope of a tree that be cut down. As if to say there's not hope if it don't be cut down. Somebody, somebody was just telling me. Amy, was it you? Beck, was, you, you were telling Beck? Tell me a little bit about those trees. Will you, do you mind? I was in Hawaii in November, and 
Kona uh, coffee is only grown there on the side of the volcano. And I wanted to go see because I really like coffee. And so we went on this tour, and the coffee trees that they grow on need to be cut down to the stump every three or seven years, and I forget which one. And I thought, man, what a beautiful picture. I love that scripture in Job. That there's help in like cut down trees. So I took a picture of the new sprouts coming up and the fruit on it. And the lady telling me said, if you do not cut this tree down, it is void. It's dead. It will not grow fruit again. It has to be cut down every so often in order for the fruit to come. And I thought, hey, just how beautiful. <laughs> you know, we can read that Job 14 and say, there is hope for a tree even though it be cut down. Or we can read it like this and say there's only hope for a tree if it be cut down. That at the scent of water, it will sprout again. If that tree has any other option, it'll be robbed of its faith, its eagerness, its readiness, its instant faith. If Brother Joel had had any other option, if Brother Howard, if my mom, if any of us had had any other option... We would have delayed. We would have bided our time. We would have hedged our bets until such time as we could make sure. That's how costly the path of life is. But he says there is hope for a tree if it be cut down. Though its root grow old in the ground, it will send forth boughs like a plant. At the scent of water, it will sprout again. You want God to come forth in your life like never before. Amen. I don't want you to come to these meetings week after week and grow dull like the dog under the anvil. Brother Barry, Sister Patty, they were the same way. Why did the seed fall on their soil and bear fruit? Because it was torn up soil. Because it was thoroughly plowed and broken and crushed soil. Because nothing was growing. Hopelessness and death had choked everything else out. And they were starving for a hope. And Jesus was the only hope. And they accepted him at his word. They went all the way. Hallelujah. Don't tell me you've tried until you've gotten that desperate. Praise you, Jesus. Unbelief is a drug. It's a drug that we take. Skepticism is a drug. And David Hume was high on it. And all of the Enlightenment philosophers were high on it. Skepticism is a drug. It's what we take when we don't want to pay the price of trust and obedience. And we want to look better than the cowards that we really are. And so we hold on to skepticism. And we say, well, I just don't know. You don't need to know. You need to get desperate enough. And then you'll give all and you'll find out. Thank you, Jesus. This is my worship. This is my offering. In every moment, I withhold nothing. I'm learning to trust you. Brothers and sisters, let the arsenal of truth change the way we think. And visitors, those of you who are visiting, don't stay where you are. Don't hear the word of God week after week. And don't look outside yourself. Look right in here and say, God, am I ready? Am I desperate? Or am I still holding on to some other plan B that i got to try out when I'm done? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.
Praise you, Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Break every chain, Lord Jesus. Break every chain, Lord Jesus. Every chain of unbelief, God. Break every chain, Lord. Break it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. 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 Praise you, God. Praise you, Lord God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You see, David, David was so desperate for the glory of God to come back according to promise. He was satisfied. He was unable to be, he was unable to be quieted. His soul was so agitated until God's glory would come back into its proper place. And he was vexed at their mistakes. But when it started coming back, nothing in the world could suppress his joy. Not the weight of a mocking spouse, not his own ego and image, nothing could suppress his joy. When you need something bad enough, all you need is just a little sliver of hope. And I'm telling you, God has given you more than a sliver of hope here today. He's giving you an assurance. Amen. There's nothing you can give him that he won't give you in return. You cannot outgive him. You cannot outdo him. Thank you, Jesus. If you're on the fence, make up your mind. Don't let your emotions be your God. Don't let your desires be your God. Don't let your fear be your master. Amen. Something in you says, God, I wonder what it would be like if I gave everything. Well, you won't know until you do it. You won't know until you do it. But you can do it right now. Thank you, Jesus. You can do it right now. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You can, you can take as long as you want. Maybe the long suffering of God will be your salvation. Or you can say, I'm not promised tomorrow. I got to get out of this place that I'm in. My ears are growing dull and my heart is hardening. But Lord, I don't want to be in another meeting like this without getting what you've sent to me. Amen. I don't trust myself. God, I'm going to go all the way. Did you? 